When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey everyone, hope you're having a great day so far. So, I've been having a lot of fun lately watching The Mandalorian on Disney+. The show is a very cool mix of old-style Western movies with a touch of underground crime drama placed in a world full of spaceships, killer robots, and aliens. And of course, Baby Yoda. It doesn't get much cooler than this, really. The season isn't over yet, but already we've gotten hints and tidbits of the new lore and a sense of a much wider galaxy and history to explore post-Return of the Jedi. So, for today... I thought I'd go over 10 interesting facts about the bounty hunter known simply as the Mandalorian or Mando, at least until we know further. Now once the show ends, or even maybe once season 2 ends, I might come back and redo this video with more information that we've been given, but I'm going to cram as much as we know into this one, including canon information from Rebels and Clone Wars and other content. First up at number 1, he's a foundling. We've heard of younglings before. But what's a foundling? Well, in the show, we sort of have both. The Mandalorian, who I'm going to refer to as Mando, and Baby Yoda are both orphans. And it's this shared experience that makes such a hardened, tough guy bounty hunter risk everything to protect the tiny green ball of cuteness. The debate over who or what Baby Yoda is will continue in the fan community, of course, until we learn more about him. Who is Baby Yoda? We know that he's a he, as Dr. Pershing referred to him as a he. Could he be a Grand Master species, or could he just be a regular Yoda species? Are there tears in the Yoda species, or is there any relation to Yoda at all? Maybe he's something entirely different, which I highly doubt. Or perhaps the little fella is Yoda's clone, indeed. Now, as we'll find out in time, we know that he is 50 years of age and still a baby and strong in the Force. So, if the Jedi Order as it existed in the Old Republic had still been around, they would have taken in the cute little frog eater and made him a youngling to be trained as a Jedi. And who knows, maybe the Mando will eventually hand him over to whatever Jedi Order Luke Skywalker is forming at this particular post-Return of the Jedi period. Or maybe he'll become a Mandalorian himself, a Yoda Mandalorian. What we do learn though through the series is that the Mando was and is a foundling. And apparently, similar to the Jedi, the Mandalorians take in children and train them in their way of life too. But while the Jedi only took in Force-sensitive children through the consent of their parents, the Mandalorians take in and adopt children who have been orphaned through battle. As they did with the Mando, whose parents were killed by the battle droids during the Clone Wars when he was just a kid. Shortly after this, he was taken in by the tribe. The Mandalorians take in these foundlings to further their line, and because they want to assure that line stays strong, they only adopted children who display a will to not just live, but to fight. Number two, Carbonite. 
Did Anakin Skywalker or Darth Vader change the bounty hunter industry forever? When we first met the Mando and see him collect the bounty on the blue-skinned Mithril on some backwater ice world, he offers his mark this option. I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. I first took that to mean alive or dead, but there is also a more literal interpretation as later on board the Mando's ship, when the Mithril pretends to need to use the restroom but is actually trying to escape, the Mando quickly puts him into carbonite before he can do anything. In fact, we see the Mando has placed a lot of marks in carbonite. Could that be what he meant by bringing him in cold? Regardless, is this standard procedure for bounty hunters? There is a lot of conflicting lore out there about carbonite, but if we take legends out of it, I believe, and please leave comments if you know otherwise, that the first time carbonite freezing was used on any living beings was during the Clone Wars, when Anakin Skywalker was sent on a mission to infiltrate an impenetrable prison the Separatists had captured, called the Citadel, which had been constructed to hold rogue Jedi. His mission was to rescue a Jedi Master named Evan Peel. The plan, devised by Anakin's involvement, reprogrammed battle droids, but also placed himself, Obi-Wan, and their clone troopers into carbonite to fool their enemies' life-form detectors. It was an unorthodox plan that was very successful, and one that he repeated again when as Darth Vader, he used Han Solo as a guinea pig to test if the freezing process would work without killing the scruffy-looking nerf herder. Even years after the Clone Wars, to freeze a living being was not what Carbonite was designed to do. Vader wanted to freeze Luke alive to present to the Emperor. So how did it go from this experimental, dangerous procedure to the standard bounty hunter methodology? And is it? Was it Boba Fett who introduced it to the bounty hunter community, or is this something unique to Mandalorians? I guess we're gonna find out more about this. But what is certain is that our Mando definitely does use Carbonite Freeze. Number 3. The Mandalorian Ship Speaking of Mando's ship, the Razor Crest, other than housing Carbonite Frozen bounties, it was a pre-Empire gunship, once used to patrol local territories for the Republic military. The ship's minimalist interior, with a simple room for the pilot, his weapons and whatever gear needed to bring the bounties back, dead or alive, is very much based on the Western aesthetic and shows how the Mando only uses what he needs to do his job and survive. The Razorcrest is in many ways an extension of the Mando and functions as his main form of transportation and living quarters. Also, I believe when we see the ship's toilet that it's the first time that particular throne has really been shown in Star Wars. The design of the ship itself is perhaps inspired by the Jaster Mareel, Jango Fett's amphibious interstellar assault transport ship that he had before acquiring the iconic Slave One. Number four, Bounty Puck. This unique useful device that made its first appearance on the show is a Bounty Puck, or simply a Puck. It's a small device that can project holographic images accompanied by the name and the price of the bounty. The Bounty Hunters Guild hands these pucks out to their bounty hunters. If a hunter accepts a puck, that means they accept the job. So. When the Mando accepted the puck of the Mon Calamari nobleman's son while asking the guild representative, Grief Karga, about the fate of Baby Yoda, he actually ended up breaking the bounty hunter code in two ways. The first was getting involved with the baby, and the second, unless we see otherwise in some upcoming episode, he took a puck but never tried to do the job and hunt down the young noble fishman. Number 5. Bounty Hunter Code So, what is this code exactly? Well, the Bounty Hunter Code, or the Code of the Guild, was developed in order to modify the behavior and conduct of the Bounty Hunters in the Guild, by having them follow a certain set of rules for their protection, and the protection of their fellow Bounty Hunters. For instance, 
It was forbidden for a bounty hunter to slay another hunter, unless there was a bounty on that hunter, or steal another's bounty. Also, once a job was accepted, once a puck was chosen, in other words, a bounty hunter only needed to know the target and if the client wanted them dead or alive. Any information that had nothing to do with completing the mission was irrelevant. So, when the Mando asked his Imperial Remnant client what their plans were for the child, he was in clear violation of the code. Number 6. Mandalorian Symbol and Clan Emblems A circle with a piece of wheat across it, followed by a teardrop in the upper left corner and the signet of a Mandalorian warrior's clan on the lower right, is the crest found on most Mandalorian armor, along with the emblem of an elongated skull, or Crybess as it is known in Mandoa, the native tongue of the Mandalorians, which is commonly believed to be a representation of a mythosaur. The mythosaur were creatures believed to be even larger than the legendary crate dragons of Tatooine, and were ridden by the Mandalorians of old. A symbol of the mythosaur can be found by the entrance to the Mandalorian armor's enclave. The Ugnaught, Kuil, brought the creatures up when he scolded the Mando for trying to give up riding the Blurg on the planet Arvala 7. If his ancestors could ride magnificent creatures like mythosaurs, then surely a Blurg should be no challenge. But what is also interesting is that after receiving enough Beskar steel for the armorer to forge him a whole new armor set, the Mando refused to have her add a Mudhorn signet to the suit, claiming it wasn't honorably earned, that an enemy helped him, but also showing us that he has no clan marking. Is that because he was a foundling? Or is there some other reason that he has no clan signet? If the Mando is a man without a clan, he is still considered part of the tribe. What the distinction is remains unclear at the moment. Number 7. Tracking Fob So, every bounty hunter seems to have a tracking fob. What are they? Well, to put it very simply, they are small handheld devices used by bounty hunters to track down their target, or targets, throughout the galaxy. But how do they work? Well, up front, they seem to be very similar to radio trackers. They have a loop-style antenna, they appear to have a limited range, but blink red and admit a beeping noise when they are within a radius of their quarry. Now, the range might be limited, but it seems to kind of expand across the galaxy. Or at least so I think, for now. As the Mando was found on the mysterious planet where he met Cara Dune. The blinking and the beeping increases in speed and tempo the closer they get. Kind of like a game of uh, hot or cold. However, there's probably more sophistication and complexity of the fobs than first meets the eye. For instance, when the Mando arrives with the tracking fobs for the blue-skinned Mithril and whoever the others were that he put in Carbonite, he drops the trackers on the table in front of his guild contact, Grief Karga. But when Karga attempts to pay for the bounties with Imperial credits, the Mando withdraws the fobs. Why? Karga's men are already taking the Carbonite prisoners off his ship. What does he need the fobs for? The job is done, unless they are much more complicated than earthbound radio trackers. It hasn't really been explained yet, so I'm just theorizing here, but when the Mando was sent off after Baby Yoda, he first needed to know the target's last known location. Then he got part of its chain code, whatever that is. And with that, he was able to track Baby Yoda with the fob. The bounties he was after in the beginning were bail jumpers, so it could make sense that some sort of tracking device could have been implanted into former inmates. And if Baby Yoda is involved in some sort of imperial scientific experiment, they could have placed a tracker inside of him years ago. I mean, he's been around for 50 years. But why are the fobs important to return with the bounty? It could be that it's not tracking some sort of transmitter implanted in the targets, but instead is somehow 
somehow intoned to their genetic code. I mean, the Mando knows Baby Yoda is being tracked by FOB, so why hasn't he removed the transmitter? He went to Sorgan to find a sanctuary for little Yoda. Ended up fighting an ATSD, but had to flee with the child as he was being hunted down by other bounty hunters. So, again, like I said, why didn't he just get rid of the transmitter? Perhaps it's because he can't if there is no transmitter, and instead, they are tracking the baby's genetic code. That could also be why the fobs were so important to Grief Karga. It wasn't enough to hand the carbonite marks over to whoever the clients were, the fobs were proof of their identity. So, a security measure to make sure that the bounty hunters didn't just capture random innocents and claim them as targets. That's just a theory. Number eight, the Camtono. After the Mando handed Baby Yoda over to the Imperial Remnant, he was given as payment a cylindrical security container called a Camtono, which was full of Beskar steel. In canon, the Camtono is used to store precious metals or spice and is easily transportable, as it has a handle to carry it with. However, the design of the Camtono is actually a funny little wink the Mandalorian showrunners gave observant fans. It's an ice cream maker. Well, designed after one at any rate. Its origins actually lie in a brief scene from The Empire Strikes Back when Lando Calrissian turns against the Empire and warns the citizen of Cloud City about the Imperial takeover. During the evacuation, there is a background actor who runs through one of the corridors holding on tight to a prop that is clearly an ice cream maker. The character's name is Will Rowe Hood, a miner, but many know him simply as the ice cream guy. Anyways, in Legends and Canon, whenever Will Rowe Hood shows up, he is always holding onto that ice cream maker, which has now inspired the Mandalorian's Camtono. Number nine, Boba Fett was in the first episode. Blink and you miss it, or even don't blink and you might miss it. Unless you pump up the brightness on your screens, you aren't likely to have spotted the greatest bounty hunter in the galaxy, for now. Django's clone son was on the Disney streaming show, or at least a Mandalorian wearing his armor. And that's really the point of this one. A lot of people are saying, well, Boba was in the show, but you know, bounty hunters look quite similar in a lot of senses, and who knows where this guy got his armor, who knows if it's actually Boba Fett, I highly doubt it is, and if it is, well, we're gonna find out, but I really don't think that they would reveal him like that, just in the background a little bit. Now, it hasn't been confirmed yet that it was Boba Fett, nor even if he survived the Starlock Pit at all, as he did in Legends, but if you pause the pilot episode at the 18 minute and 31 second mark, you'll spot a very iconic figure. Boba is inside, or the look-alike Boba is inside the underground location of the Hidden Tribe. He's a figure that moves in the shadows behind the Mandalorian, which might be symbolism. The design and color scheme of the armor matches Boba Fett's, even has a blaster dent on the upper right of the helmet in the same spot we have seen on Fett before. Again, it could be Boba Fett, or someone who is just wearing his armor, or maybe just a little nod to his character. Now, there is a man named Cobb Vanth, who is the sheriff of a small Tatooine town called Freetown. He wears a set of acid-damaged Mandalorian armor that he took from some Jawas. Could the Great Pit of Karkoon, the Sarlacc, have spit out Boba Fett's armor and the tiny scavengers found it? Or perhaps the Mandalorian is neither Boba nor Cobb. We shall see. For regardless, I don't think Return of the Jedi will mark the last time that we see Boba Fett. Number 10, Mandalorians can't remove their helmets. We learned through the series that Mando has never removed his helmet in front of anybody since he was taken in by the tribe as a child. Why can't he? Well, the short answer is that he can, but if he does, he'll never be able to put it on again, meaning he will no longer be considered a Mandalorian. 
An interesting rule, but is it an ancient Mandalorian tradition, or specific to the tribe, or perhaps just to foundlings, is that in both legends and canon, such as seen in the Clone Wars and Rebels, the various Mandalorians in those shows occasionally take off their helmets. Not just when they're alone or with other Mandalorians, but allies and enemies alike. There doesn't seem to be any issue with it. So why is it for the Mando? Why does it have to do with the Purge, which devastated the Mandalorian clans under Imperial occupation? The few that remained had to go into hiding. Is that what led them to keep their helmets on? But the occupation happened after Revenge of the Sith. And clearly, Mando was taken in by the Mandalorian sometime between Attack of the Clones and Episode 3. So, this was far before the Imperial occupation of Mandalore. And he claims never to have removed the helmet in public since he became one of the tribe. So it doesn't really quite work out. But what is known is that the Mandalorians considered their armor to be part of themselves. An extension, rather. Like a second skin. Their armor is tied to their clan identity and sense of belonging. Hey guys, in today's video we're going to go over the top 5 Mandalorian sects. And I'm going to add a bonus one at the end of this, so it's really going to be 6, but we're going to focus on 5. Now in the Star Wars universe, there are several different sects of Mandalorians. There are more than 5, there's many. Each with its own unique beliefs, practices, and traditions. So today we're going to go over a brief overview of some of the most notable Mandalorian sects. Let's go all the way back to the Old Republic. And let's start with the Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders. The Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders were a group of Mandalorian warriors who emerged during the Old Republic era in the Star Wars universe. They were known for their extreme ideology, which emphasized conquest, expansion, and the aggressive spread of Mandalorian culture. Some notable members of Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders were, of course, Mandalore the Ultimate, this was the leader of the Neo-Crusaders. Mandalore the Ultimate was a fierce warrior and strategist who sought to expand the influence of the Mandalorian people. I'll go over him in detail in a video just about Mandalore the Ultimate. The second would be Cassus Fett. He was a high-ranking member of the Neo-Crusaders and a skilled warrior and tactician who served as Mandalore's right-hand man. He was an ancestor of Jango and Boba Fett and was mentioned in various Star Wars mediums. Number three can be Roland Dyer, a former member of the Neo-Crusaders who later defected to the Republic. Roland Dyer was a skilled warrior and fighter who was known for his loyalty and honor. He was portrayed by Mark Rolston in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic II, The Sith Lords. Now, Neo-Crusaders differed from other Mandalorian sects in that they embraced a highly aggressive and expansionist ideology, seeking to conquer and dominate other cultures in the name of Mandalorian supremacy. They also placed a strong emphasis on traditional warrior values such as honor, loyalty, and courage, but saw these values as being in service of their ultimate goal of conquest. This philosophy put them at odds with other Mandalorian factions, such as the pacifist New Mandalorians and the more traditionalist True Mandalorians. The Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders were seen as an extremist faction within the Mandalorian culture, representing a dangerous and aggressive form of militarism that threatened to destabilize the galaxy. Overall, the Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders were a significant faction in the Star Wars universe, representing a unique perspective on the Mandalorian culture and their role in the galaxy. Their legacy continues to be explored in various Star Wars media, and their influence can be seen in the development of the characters of Jango and Boba Fett. Next up, number two, we've got Death Watch. 
Now, Death Watch was a radical sect of Mandalorians that believed in the restoration of Mandalore's warrior culture through violent means. They rejected the pacifist ideals of the new Mandalorians and believed that only through strength and conflict can their people achieve true greatness. As a splinter group that originated during the Clone Wars, they fully rejected Duchess Satine Kree's and instead embraced the warrior traditions of their people. Led by the charismatic and ruthless Pre Vizsla, Death Watch sought to restore Mandalore to its former glory as a warrior society. They carried out attacks against Republic and Separatist forces alike, as well as other Mandalorian factions that they deemed to be too weak or compromised. You can kind of think of Death Watch as very elitist beings who thought they were number one. Now, they were known for their distinctive black and red armor, which set them apart from other Mandalorian factions. They also wielded a variety of weapons, including blasters, vibroblades, and flamethrowers, and they were extremely skilled in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They were, after all, very aggressive, just like their original people. Some notable members of Death Watch include Pre Vizsla, as we saw in the Clone Wars, who fought Darth Maul. He was the founder and leader of Death Watch. Pre Vizsla was a skilled warrior and strategist who was determined to restore Mandalore to its warrior past. He was voiced by Jon Favreau in the Clone Wars animated series. The second would be Bo-Katan Kryze, sister to Satine Kryze. A former member of Death Watch, Bo-Katan Kryze eventually left the group after becoming disillusioned with its violent methods. She went on to become a leader in the Mandalorian resistance against the Empire and later joined forces with Din Djarin creating her own subsect called the Night Owls. Third notable member of the Death Watch is Gar Saxon. He was a high-ranking member of Death Watch and a skilled warrior and tactician who served as Pre Vizsla's right-hand man. He later went on to serve as an Imperial Super Commando under Darth Maul's Shadow Collective. We also have to mention Rook Cast, a female Mandalorian warrior who was one of Death Watch's most skilled fighters. Rook Cast was known for her expertise in close quarter combat and her proficiency with a variety of weapons. So overall, Death Watch was a significant faction in the Star Wars universe, representing a unique blend of Mandalorian warrior traditions and extremist ideology. Their impact was felt throughout the Clone Wars and beyond. Number three. The New Mandalorians. We can't mention Death Watch without talking about these guys. The New Mandalorians are a group that arose after the devastating Mandalorian Wars. They rejected the violent past of their people and instead sought to establish a society based on pacifism, neutrality, and diplomacy. They believe that Mandalore's future lies in cooperation with other cultures rather than in conflict. A pacifist faction of Mandalorians that emerged in the Star Wars universe were all led by Duchess Satine Kryz. This is why them and Death Watch had such a big issue with each other. They had completely different values. They also placed a strong emphasis on education, the arts, and technological innovation, and were instrumental in transforming Mandalore into a prosperous and peaceful society. Notable members of the New Mandalorians were of course Duchess Satine Kryz, the founder and leader of the New Mandalorians. Satine was a strong-willed and principled leader who was committed to building a better future for her people. She was a close friend and confidant of Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi and was portrayed by Anna Graves in Star Wars The Clone Wars. This philosophy put them at odds with other Mandalorian factions, such as of course Death Watch and the Mandalorian Protectors, who viewed the new Mandalorians as weak and cowardly. This led to conflict between the various Mandalorian sects, with the new Mandalorians often finding themselves caught in the middle. 
Overall, the new Mandos were a significant faction in the Star Wars universe, representing a unique perspective on their Mandalorian culture and their role in the galaxy. Their influence can be seen in the Mandalorian show, as we have many different Mandalorians of all walks of life and all different factions. The next up would be True Mandalorians. The True Mandalorians are a sect that emerged in the aftermath of the Mandalorian Wars. They believed in the traditional Mandalorian values of honor, courage, and strength, but reject the extreme violence of the Death Watch. They seek to maintain Mandalorian culture and traditions while also avoiding unnecessary bloodshed. The True Mandalorians were a group of Mandalorian warriors who believed in the traditional warrior culture of their people as opposed to the pacifist ideology of the new Mandos. Notable members of the True Mandalorians include Jaster Moreel, the leader of the True Mandalorians and a skilled warrior and strategist. He played a significant role in the Mandalorian Wars, which were fought between the Mandalorians and the Republic. He was a staunch defender of Mandalorian culture and traditions, and he fought to protect his people from outside threats. Now, in Legends, Jastrom Reel was also known as the mentor of Jango Fett, and I would even go as far as saying this is canon when we saw Boba bring up the hologram of who his suit belonged to in The Mandalorian Season 2. Now, I should mention that Star Wars canon has not yet explored true Mandalorians in detail at all. So the members of the clan may be very different from what was established in Legends. But we've also got Montross, Cal Skirata, and Waylon Vow. Now, Waylon Vow was actually pretty cool. He was a Mandalorian who trained the clone troopers when they were cloned. And he was a former member of the true Mandalorians. He in fact trained several squads of clone commandos, including Omega Squad and Delta Squad. You can actually learn more about his story in the Republic Commando books. Next, Jango Fett. One of the most famous true Mandalorians, Jango Fett was a renowned bounty hunter and mercenary who became the template for the clone army of the Galactic Republic for those who are new to Star Wars. He was of course portrayed by Tamora Morrison in Star Wars Episode II Attack of the Clones, and then, of course, Tamora played Boba Fett in The Mandalorian. Next, of course, we have Boba Fett, son and clone of Jango Fett, who inherited his father's armor and weapons. The true Mandalorians differed from other Mandalorian sects in that they embraced the traditional warrior culture of their people, which included a code of honor, loyalty, and respect for their enemies. They believed in the importance of strength, skill, and courage in battle, and saw warfare as a means of asserting their dominance and preserving their way of life. The true Mandos also opposed the Mandalorian Protectors, a faction of Mandalorians who served as the elite soldiers of the new Mandalorians and were seen as betraying the warrior traditions of their people. Overall, the true Mandalorians were a significant faction in the Star Wars universe, representing a unique perspective on the Mandalorian culture. Now, these guys aren't supposed to be confused with Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders. As I've stated, true Mandalorians were a faction of Mandalorian warriors who opposed the violent and expansionist ways of Death Watch. The Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders, on the other hand, were a later faction of Mandalorian warriors who emerged during the Mandalorian Wars, a major conflict that occurred approximately 4,000 years before the events of the original trilogy. Neo-Crusaders were a more militant and aggressive group than the true Mandalorians, and they sought to conquer and expand Mandalorian territory in the galaxy. Next up, we have Children of the Watch. Children of the Watch are a sect of Mandalorians that follow a strict interpretation of the way of the Mandalore. They believe that Mandalorian culture is in danger of being lost and seek to preserve it through a strict code of conduct. 
They wear their helmets at all times in public and adhere to a strict set of rules governing their behavior. Now, of course, we've seen them in The Mandalorian on Disney+, primarily Din Djarin, especially in the latest episode of Season 3, Episode 1. They were much more traditional, and they believed in the strict adherence of these traditions of Mandalorian culture, as well as a strong loyalty to their fellow Mandalorians. Notable members of the Children of the Watch include, of course, Din Djarin the Mandalorian and Paz Vizsla, a member of the Children of the Watch and a former member of the Death Watch. Paz Vizsla was a skilled warrior and fighter who is known for his strength and loyalty. Next up, of course, we have the Armorer, who is the one who seems to be in charge of all of them. Their strict adherence to the way of the Mandalore, including the never-removing-helmets rule, also set them apart from other Mandalorian sects and caused some controversy among fans of the franchise. A lot of people got confused. Well, why can't they remove their helmets when Bo-Katan and others can? It's mainly because of their code of honor and loyalty to their fellow Mandalorians and, well, just their rules, which remained a defining aspect of their identity as a group. Finally, I want to discuss quickly Clan Wren. Now, Clan Wren is a Mandalorian clan that features prominently in Star Wars Rebels. They're known for their warrior prowess and loyalty to Mandalore's traditional ways. They are led by Ursa Wren, who is a skilled warrior and a respected member of the Mandalorian community. They were a traditionalist Mandalorian clan that believed in the warrior culture and values of their people. Some notable members of Clan Wren include, of course, Ursa Wren, Tristan Wren, who was Ursa's son and a member of Clan Wren, skilled fighter and warrior, and of course, Sabine Wren. A former member of Clan Wren, Sabine was a skilled fighter and artist who later became a member of the Ghost Crew in Rebels. Clan Wren differed from other Mandalorian sects in that they placed a strong emphasis on the importance of family and clan loyalty. They were known for their fierce independence and self-sufficiency and were willing to fight to protect their people and way of life. Their traditionalist values also set them apart from other Mandalorian factions, such as the pacifist New Mandalorians and the fundamentalist Children of the Watch. Clan Wren believed in the importance of strength, courage, and honor in battle, and saw warfare as a means of asserting their dominance and preserving their way of life. Overall, the Clan Wren was a significant faction in the Star Wars universe. And to keep it up to date with us going into Ahsoka, I want you to know a little more about Clan Wren and their unique perspective on Mandalorian culture. Today we're going to cover Mandalorian weapons that were designed to combat the abilities of a Jedi. Now Mandalorian Vambraces were developed alongside their armor in the Mandalorian Jedi War as the fearsome warriors answer to the Force. The Vambraces were computer-controlled tools overflowed with weaponry specifically designed to combat a Jedi's abilities. They often came equipped with numerous armaments for the task. Flamethrowers, for instance, as the flames could not be blocked by the single beam of a lightsaber, and so the Force wielder would either have to try to avoid the fire or retreat. Only someone proficiently strong enough could shield themselves with the Force. Then there were wrist rockets, like the MM9 Mini Concussion Rocket Launcher, which I think is pretty much self-explanatory why that would give the Jedi a hard time. Then the whipcord throwers. These were pretty cool. These were cords that would be shot at Jedi and tangle them up, preventing them from moving, like the one Boba Fett shot around Luke's wrist in Return of the Jedi, or the one Jango shot around Obi-Wan in Attack of the Clones. 
Shield emitters were used as personal combat plasma shields that could be activated from the Vambrans as a defense procedure that would deflect blaster bolts. This was a favorite trick of the Jedi. They loved to deflect blaster bolts. They would use their lightsabers to deflect them and bounce them right back at the Mandalorians. So, with these shields, the warriors could deflect them right back again at the Jedi. Then there was the retractable wrist blade. This was used for a surprise attack in potential close quarters combat to stab through an opponent or as a handy defense tool, like when Jango Fett had to use them to prevent himself from sliding into Kamino's oceans during his fight with Obi-Wan Kenobi in Attack of the Clones. Now speaking of Kamino, the Vambraces could also come equipped with Kamino Saber Darts, which were toxic darts developed by the cloners that if they punctured through a Jedi or any other being's skin, would instantly poison them. Then there were grappling lines. These were devices that the Vambrances used to fire a glowing yellow energized line. These could not be cut by a lightsaber, and like the whipcord thrower, could be used to entangle an opponent, but also kind of worked as the Mandalorian's version of Force Pull, like when Sabine Wren used a grappling line to retrieve the fallen Darksaber in order to continue her duel with the Jedi Knight, Kanan Jarrus. What's next? Well, paralyzing darts, similar to the Kamino Saber dart, but not lethal. In this case, the Mandalorian needed to take the Jedi alive or just wanted to slow the Force Wielder down. Now, if the grappling lines were the Vambrace's answer to Force Pull, then its repulsors were the Mandalorian's version of Force Push. The Mandos had modified it so the repulsors created shockwaves capable of repelling their enemies, mimicking the Jedi abilities. And as was demonstrated by the bounty hunter simply known as the Mandalorian, when he killed four remnant stormtroopers simultaneously during one of his missions, the Vambraces could also be equipped with Beskar-guided munitions, called whistling birds, that when deployed through the air, would make whistling noises before striking and killing their target with a small explosion. So, where the Jedi had a natural gift, the Mandalorians had to use their brains to augment their own skills and try and simulate the Force through science as much as possible, kind of like a Star Wars Iron Man or Batman. A cunning Mandalorian warrior was a very serious and clear threat to your average Jedi but even those Jedi who were exceptionally powerful would be foolish to underestimate these fierce and clever warriors and the peril posed by their equivalent to the Force, the Mandalorian Vambraces. Hey guys, in today's video I'm gonna give you a quick rundown of the Mandalorian timeline. Now, this video might not be needed for my more hardcore viewers, However, if you are one of them, thank you for watching. Please stay and let me know if I missed anything. Now, that being said, this is intended to clear up a bit of confusion to some of you who are more casual Star Wars fans in regards to where the Mandalorian fits in the overall Star Wars timeline relative to the movies. The Mandalorian takes place on the fringes of the galaxy and is a slick space western with a very lone wolf and cub inspired feel about it. When it comes to the main character and Baby Yoda, we have also seen stormtroopers in dirty beat up armor working for the client that sent our bounty hunter hero to find the cute little green youngling in the first place. But we also know from some of the conversations the Mando has had with the bounty hunter guild representative Grief Karga that the Empire is gone and all there is left of them are mercenaries and warlords. The New Republic has also been mentioned. So where the heck are we? How can there be stormtroopers if the Empire is gone? And if the Empire is gone, Where's the First Order? Wasn't Yoda almost a thousand years old when he died? So if he's a baby, does this take place in the past instead? Even before the original trilogy and the prequels? But if it's the past, how can there be a new Republic? Shouldn't it just be the Republic? Now I can see how a lot of you can be confused 
for the more laid-back Star Wars enthusiasts out there, so let me try and clear this up as much as I can. Okay, first of all, the show takes place approximately five years after the events of Return of the Jedi. So, after the second Death Star blew up, the Emperor was destroyed, seemingly, and Darth Vader was redeemed. So that means that the series is also set at about 30 years before Rey, Finn, Kylo, and the rest in The Force Awakens and the new sequel trilogy. After the end of the original trilogy, the Rebel Alliance used the incredible victory against the Empire they had achieved at the Battle of Endor to move quickly and re-establish the Galactic Senate that very same year, as they transitioned from the Alliance to restore the Republic the New Republic. But rather than placing their new galactic government on Coruscant as the former Republic and the Empire had done, the New Republic first assembled their government on the planet Chandrilla, the home of Chancellor Mon Mothma. As they held the galactic core, the New Republic military forces were able to topple the Empire and push the remnant of the Imperials outwards towards the Outer Rim world which is the part of space our Mandalorian bounty hunter spends most of his time at. Though a large number of the Imperial forces also receded into the Unknown Regions, it was there where they would reform later into the First Order. It's a very chaotic time. The rising New Republic is still trying to consolidate and cement its power in the galaxy, while still dealing with the Imperial Remnant and other new Separatist factions that have popped up to challenge their authority. Werner Herzog's character, who is the client that wants Baby Yoda, is part of, or at least working for, the Imperial Remnant. This is why he is guarded by beaten up stormtroopers. Now as for Baby Yoda, well, he's not the old Yoda from the previous trilogies. We still don't know who he truly is, only that he is 50 years old, which for a species that can live up to nearly a thousand, still makes him a baby. But the scientist who is also working with the Imperial Remnant, perhaps against his will, has an insignia on his uniform that matches those used by the Kamino cloners in the Clone Wars. This could suggest that the Yoda baby is a clone of the old Jedi Master, though it's possible that he could also be the reincarnation of the actual Yoda. Or he's just another Yoda species, and we don't know anything about Yoda species, that's why everyone just refers to him as Baby Yoda. I mean, it's not like they're gonna call him Baby Yadel. But regardless, this particular member of the Yoda species was born around the same time as Anakin Skywalker, and not centuries in the past like the real Yoda. So basically, the Mandalorian will shed some light on the 30-year period between Episode 6, Return of the Jedi, and Episode 7, The Force Awakens. Today we're going to talk about some Mandalorian armor. The iconic armor of the Mandalorians was a symbol of fear and strength, earned through millennia of a long, bloody history of war and glory. The warrior clan's armor sets were the most common and recognizable with their T-shaped visor helmets, shoulder pauldrons for rank or affiliation, van braces, breastplates, cod pieces, knee pads, thigh and shin guards, clasped over body stockings, magnetized shoes, and incredible assortment of armaments that the Mandalorians had installed in their armor. You guys get the point. Now, their weapons were even cooler. Flamethrowers, jetpacks that allowed for flight to increase maneuverability in combat, or, you know, flying, plain simple. And they were often tipped with anti-vehicle homing missile launchers on those jetpacks. The fierce warrior also used whipcord throwers, which could project a cord that would entangle an opponent and prevent them from moving, very Batman style. Within their helmets were macro binoculars, 
View plates, tactical displays, comlinks, and antenna capped with targeting devices called rangefinders that could enhance the view plate imagery once they were pulled over it. Ideally, a Mandalorian's armor was constructed out of the rare iron called Beskar, which we all know by now. This was found only on their homeworld and one of their moons. A metal that was nearly indestructible and could withstand blaster fire and even several blows from a lightsaber. Such armor, due to its high durability, was able to remain in pristine condition for hundreds of years. However, Beskar was rare and very expensive, so not every Mandalorian's armor was made out of the material. Some, like the armor worn by Jango and Boba Fett, was constructed out of Durasteel. The way the Mandalorians came up with their singular armor designs that is so distinctive to them was actually in response to their numerous encounters with the Jedi. Though their armor had always played a significant role in their culture from their very beginnings with the ancient Mandalorian Crusaders who wore helmets over cloaks, or later the Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders who also wore helmets, it was really during the series of conflicts that marked the period called the Mandalorian Jedi War, that the warrior clans fashioned their infamous armor, weaponry, and fighting techniques, all of which were formulated to combat Jedi Knights and their force abilities. Years prior to the Clone Wars, a civil war ignited between the more peace-seeking clans of Mandalore, known as the New Mandalorians, and the traditionalists, such as the warriors of Death Watch, who wanted to keep their old warmongering ways. To reflect their ideological shifts, both sides adapted different styles for their armor. Jango Fett wore Mandalorian armor, even though officials of Mandalore, like Prime Minister Almec, disavowed any connection between the Mandalorian people and Fett as he was seen as nothing but a bounty hunter, regardless of the Prime Minister's contemptuous views. The Kaminoans who would use Jango as the clone template for their Grand Army of the Republic took inspiration from his suit in the design for the clone trooper armor. In the midst of the Clone Wars, the former Sith Lord Darth Maul had managed to become the new ruler of Mandalore, and as such, he had his followers, the warriors of Death Watch, customize their armor to honor him. After the Clone Wars, when the Galactic Empire had subjugated Mandalore, the Imperial puppet ruler, Viceroy and Governor Gar Saxon, along with the Mandalorian warriors who were loyal to the Emperor, known as Imperial Super Commandos, whose imposing combat skills were only eclipsed by their ruthlessness, wore armor that was more akin to that of stormtroopers than Mandalorians. At some point after the Battle of Endor and the destruction of the second Death Star, on the other side of the galaxy of the planet of Tatooine, a man named Adwin Charu was on a Jawa sandcrawler in search of droids, weapons, and mining equipment for his employer when he suddenly stumbled on a storage crate. This contained a seemingly acid-corroded yet complete set of Mandalorian armor, but before he could collect it, another man named Cobb Vanth shot him in the shoulder and took the armor for himself. If that armor had been Boba Fett's and the acid marks were from its time in the Sarlacc pit, then despite not being constructed out of Beskar, even Durasteel Mandalorian armor was quite impressive, as the damage to it was only surface deep with some scarring. For the armor was still functional, as Cobb Vanth would go on to use it as the sheriff of a local settlement called Freetown. Hey everyone, today let's talk about Mandalorian Crusaders in Legends. Mandalore I, or otherwise known as Tesolic Mandalore, was the legendary warlord who led all of his people to conquer the planet that would be named after him. Mandalore. His followers would also recast themselves in his honor, 
becoming the Mando Aid or Mandalorians, sons and daughters of Mandalore. But who were they originally? Let's find out. Mandalore the first and his followers were members of an ancient species of two meter tall gray skinned humanoid simians. They were indigenous to prehistoric Coruscant long before it was a city planet that had been waging ongoing hostilities for centuries with Coruscant's other major power, the human-dominated 13 nations of Zell and their combined military force, the battalions of Zell. The Tongs were warriors who viewed battle as a source of honor for the individual and for their gods. In that way, Warfare was seen as a ritual to their gods, and at some point during their conflict, a supervolcano erupted, which darkened the Coruscant skies, blocking out the sun with its spewing ash and nearly annihilated their entire human enemies. Embracing the destruction wrought forth by the volcano, the Tongs called themselves Dawerda Verda, the Warriors of the Shadow. Though the volcano had been devastating for the humans, they did manage to survive and eventually were even able to drive the Tongs off of Coruscant. But the Simeon's warriors would find refuge on the outer rim world of Rune, where they would remain for millennia until Mandalore I led them to a new planet that his followers, as I said, would name in his honor Mandalore. Once on their new homeworld, the great warlord and his Tongs would commence a campaign of destruction against the enormous city-sized native creatures that were the apex species of the planet, known as the Mythosaurs, who the warriors hunted and slaughtered to extinction. From this point on, as a symbol of status, any future sole ruler of Mandalorian clans, known as the Mandalore, would wear an emblem of a Mythosaur's skull, as a tribute of the great beasts. Once Mandalore the first had tamed the savage landscape and solidified the planet as the center of Mandalorian power, the Tongs became known only as Mandalorians. His conquest of the planet complete, Mandalore the first formed the Mandalorian Crusaders, who would become known for their individualistic, non-uniformed crusader armor their uncompromising honor code and cutting-edge technologies. They were nomadic by tradition and had no bureaucracy. Instead, they divided their labor organically, as a warrior always needed to be self-sufficient and competent. Now, unlike later Mandalorians, these crusaders didn't rely on helmet transceivers, but instead carried their information through their forces by sight and sound. They had no ranks and so often simply followed the most experienced warrior in battle. They had no written laws either, but instead followed the sacred tenets of Mandalorian life, called the Resolnaire of six actions. Now these six actions stated that the Mandalorian must wear his or her armor, speak the Mandalorian language, defend themselves and family, raise their children as Mandalorians, contribute to the clan's welfare, and when called upon by the Mandalore, to always rally to the cause. If these laws were not followed, you could not be Mandalorian, and were considered a Darmanda, a person who was ignorant of Mandalorian heritage and bereft of a Mandalorian soul, and so had no place in the Manda, the Mandalorian afterlife. The Resolnaire had no restrictions when it came to other species, so amongst the Tongs were a great variety of other alien races, all united and equal in Mandalorian society. The Crusaders' armor, whether it was their combat suits or the favorite of the veterans, their battle armor was always customized internally and externally to the individual warrior's preference. This therefore made each armor unique and distinct. They were all airtight and included enough oxygen to allow a warrior 10 hours of breathable air 
if they needed to go into the vacuum of space, that is. Often, the Crusader armor was mostly organic, but with its tough parts being decorated with spikes and straps. The armor even sometimes employed personal rocket packs, or otherwise known as jetpacks. After Mandalore I came Mandalore the Conqueror, who would lead the Crusaders and use the Mandalorian's nomadic nature and holy worship of war to venture out to worlds around their new home and set his people on a crusade of conquest to expand their territory. Through the years, the Crusaders made the worlds they conquered their homes as they traversed further through space seeking out more battles and wars to fight. By this point, they were now led by Tikandossi Mandalore or Mandalore the Indomitable, who was also a Tong. Riding basilisk war droids, powerful semi-sentient combat droids designed by the Basiliskin, another race the Mandalorians had conquered and completely devastated, the Mandalorians invaded the seven worlds of the Empress Teta system, believing that it had been weakened by numerous conflicts and battles, that its rulers, the dark side cult known as the Krath, had engaged in with the Republic and the Jedi and therefore would be prime for the taking. What Mandalore the Indomitable could not have anticipated was that the Krath were under the command of Exar Kun's apprentice, the Sith Lord Ulic Keldroma. Their confrontation resulted in the Mandalore swearing his personal and that of his people's allegiance to Keldroma after the Sith defeated him in personal combat. So, the Mandalorians combined their military might with that of the Sith forces, though not all of the warrior clans accepted the new situation, I should add. Some objected as they realized that Mandalore the Indomitable was effectively no longer their Mandalore, but instead, Ulic Keldroma was, even if the Sith wasn't allowed to take the title officially as he was not a Mandalorian. Most of the other Mandalorians ignored their objections, so a few of the Crusaders declared themselves leaderless and later would become part of the Neo-Crusader movement on Mandalore. Now, part of what would be called the Great Sith War, the Crusaders fought in many campaigns with the Sith, eventually. They were ordered to take a bulk of their forces and invade the Republic world of Onderon in a massive assault. Though initially they made great strides, the Mandalorians in the end were repelled by the native defending forces known as the Beast Riders. They had no choice but to retreat on Onderon's jungle moon of the Xun, but once there, Mandalore was separated from his troops during the chaos, and was suddenly surrounded by several of Duxun's ferocious predators who shortly made lunch out of the great warrior. However, soon after, another Tong Mandalorian discovered his helmet and became their new leader, Mandalore the Ultimate. This new Mandalore would embrace a less individualistic approach and wanted to reshape Mandalorian culture into one much more uniformed and structured. This would lead to the formation of the Neo-Crusaders, Mandayam, as it is called in the native tongue of its inhabitants, or Mandalore, in Galactic Basic. This was the Outer Rim homeworld of the multi-species warrior clan known as the Mandalorians. It was the fifth planet in its system, not far from the Hydean Way trade route, and was initially appreciated for its lush forests, dense jungles, inhospitable deserts, rivers, lakes, seas, and most importantly for being the only planet in the galaxy, with the exception of its moon Concordia, to possess the rare, indestructible iron known as Beskar Ore, an element so tough that it could even withstand blows from a lightsaber. Named after the warrior who originally conquered this vibrant world, Mandalore I, the subsequent Mandalorian regimes in the thousands of years following their planet's settlement would find themselves the ally and enemy 
of numerous galactic governments and groups throughout the various volatile periods of galactic history, which in part led them to have a great deal of political influence in over 2,000 other star systems. The Mandalorians, as a culture, were a martial people, living in warrior clans and though feared by the galaxy as aggressive warmongers with their distinctive armor and thirst for battle, as a tribe, they also had a strong sense of honor and personal conduct. With that said, however, their fearsome reputation was well earned and in the many conflicts they engaged in through the millennia, they were more often than not fighting against the Jedi. There did, however, come a time when a Mandalorian named Tar Vizsla became the first of his kin to be inducted into the Jedi Order, becoming the first Jedi Mandalorian and later ruler of Mandalore. He created the Darksaber, a unique black-bladed lightsaber which would become the symbol of leadership within his clan. House Vizsla. Now about a thousand years after Tar's passing, his Darksaber had ended up with a descendant of his named Pre Vizsla, who was the leader of Clan Vizsla, but also the violent extremist group called Death Watch. Because of all the numerous wars the Mandalorians had been drawn to through the centuries, their once beautiful and lush planet with the jungles and rivers had been ripped apart by war and reduced to an endless desert. The realization of what their warrior ways had done to their homeworld had been a wake-up call for a great deal of their populace. So, a new group of Mandalorians called, well, when it comes to naming things, the Mandos could work on a little bit of flair, but it was called the New Mandalorians. They had turned their backs on violence and constructed insulated biocube cities on the ruins of Mandalore where they were able to coexist peacefully. Now, of course, not everyone was on board with this new grand vision for their people, including Pre Vizsla and his Death Watch, who were exiled to the moon Concordia. Sometime prior to the events that led to the Trade Federation's invasion of Naboo, Mandalore was going through a civil war between the traditional warrior factions and these peace-seeking new Mandalorians, who were led by Duchess Satine. The Jedi Order was invested in the Duchess's side being the winner, as they had dealt with the Mandalorians for thousands of years and knew what a menacing threat they posed whenever they sought to conquer. Therefore, a peaceful Mandalore was in the Order's interest and in the galaxies. And so the Council assigned Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn and his Padawan learner Obi-Wan Kenobi to assist the Duchess in winning the war. The two Jedi spent a year on Mandalore, constantly on the move, as along with dealing with the chaos of war they were also being pursued by bounty hunters. The war was vicious and brutal, and by its end, a majority of Mandalore's inhabitants had been killed. During these intense times, the Duchess and Obi-Wan had formed a romantic attachment. However, once her side came out victorious, she was left to rebuild her world without him or Qui-Gon, as the two Jedi were reassigned shortly afterwards. When eventually the galaxy was thrown into the Clone Wars, Mandalore declared itself neutral. However, Pre Vizsla's splinter group, Death Watch, who were exiled on Concordia, wished for the Mandalorian people to embrace their warrior heritage once again, and therefore allied themselves with the Confederacy of Independent Systems in hopes that Count Dooku's support would allow Death Watch to conquer Mandalore. So, as the galaxy-wide war carried on, they engaged in a terrorist campaign against the Duchess with several assassination attempts on her life. Years into the war, Death Watch had not relented in their goals and eventually made a new alliance with former Sith Lord Darth Maul and his apprentice brother Savage Opress, 
who were the founding leaders of an organization of crime families. They were called the Shadow Collective. Pre Vizsla used this Shadow Collective to create a panic for the citizens of Mandalore by having them conduct multiple raids on key locations throughout the capital city of Sundari, killing a great number of people and overwhelming the Duchess' peacekeeping forces. Finally, capitalizing on the fear and panic he had caused, Pre Vizsla made a public promise of protecting the citizens from any further attacks and as they stopped, now that Pre Vizsla wasn't ordering them, the public turned to Death Watch for protection and leadership. So, the Death Watch leader had the Duchess placed in prison as he became the new Prime Minister and Mandalore. Pre Vizsla's time in the limelight was short-lived though, as disagreements between himself and Maul escalated to the point that the two of them eventually engaged each other in single combat to determine which one, the fascist, Mandalorian, or the evil dark side Zabrak should rule Mandalore. Of course, the ex-Sith walked away the victor with Vizsla's Darksaber now in his possession, making Maul the new Mandalore. However, instead of taking political office, Maul had a man who had once been Prime Minister named Almec. He took the position again, but only now just as a puppet for the Darksider to utilize for his own ends. A fraction of the Death Watch Mandalorian splintered from those that now followed Maul and aided the Duchess in contacting the Republic for aid. While unable to send military or official Jedi support due to Mandalore's neutrality, Obi-Wan Kenobi decided to personally attempt to rescue the Duchess and was able to infiltrate the members of Death Watch that were loyal to Maul and broke the Duchess out of prison. But before they could make it out of the place, Maul's forces caught up with them and blocked their escape. In revenge against Obi-Wan, who had left him half the man that he was, literally, Maul murdered the Duchess, and he had realized that Obi-Wan held romantic feelings for her. He then had the devastated Jedi Master sent to indefinite imprisonment. However, while in transit to his cell, the Death Watch splinter group that had abandoned Maul were able to free the Jedi and get him transport off-planet in the hopes that Obi-Wan would bring Republic reinforcements. However, Maul didn't have long to steam over Kenobi's escape, as he and Savage Opress were suddenly confronted personally by the Dark Lord of the Sith himself, Darth Sidious, who had grown aware of the situation on Mandalore and now saw Maul's Shadow Collective and position as the head of the Mandalorians as a threat to the Sith Order. Sidious made short work of them both, killing Savage and capturing Maul, which effectively marked the end of the Zabrak's rule over Mandalore. Eventually, in the end, Maul did manage to escape from his former Sith Master and returned to Mandalore during the last days of the Clone Wars. He was being pushed by the 501st Legion of the Grand Army of the Republic, under the command of former Jedi Padawan Ahsoka Tano and Captain Rex. Ahsoka managed to locate and corner Maul, but at that moment, Order 66 was given and all the clone troops with the exception of Rex turned on Ahsoka. This opportunity allowed Maul to escape. Soon after, both Ahsoka and Rex were able to make their own escapes, but the 501st became an occupation force under the government that replaced the Republic, the Galactic Empire. The Empire set up an Imperial Academy on Mandalore to train new military cadets and installed Imperial collaborator Gar Saxon as Viceroy and Governor of the planet. He ruled until his death at the hands of Ursa Wren, which resulted in yet another civil war. Eventually though, the Imperial-backed clan of Saxon was defeated. The Mandalorian Lady Bo-Katan, who had been the leader of the Death Watch group that broke away from Maul and was the sister of the deceased Duchess Satine. She was given the Darksaber and made the new Mandalore, 
And so, the traditions of the proud warriors continued on, now that the clans of Mandalore were finally free of the Empire, and able to forge their own destiny in the galaxy once again, for better or for worse. Hey everyone, and welcome to this short video about Mandalorian Night Owls. During the Clone Wars, the leader of an elite group of Mandalorian soldiers called the Night Owls was a human woman named Bo-Katan Kryze, who believed in the martial traditions of Mandalore's past, while her sister, Duchess Satine of Mandalore, steered her people towards a more non-violent, pacifist path. Bo-Katan decided to join a radical Mandalorian terrorist group called Death Watch, which also sought to revive their people's wearing heritage. So. When she joined the extremists, the Night Owls sided with them. She remained their leader, even as she was a lieutenant in Death Watch, answering to that organization's chieftain, Previsla. The Night Owl's armor and equipment was similar in appearance to that worn by the Death Watch. They had the same type of weapons, too, including dart launchers, hidden blades in their gauntlets, tripwire, blasters, and of course, a jetpack to fly with. Their metallic grey and blue plated armor was also individualized in the sense that each warrior had their own unique marking or symbol placed somewhere on their metal covering. The new peaceful Mandalorians, under Katan's sister's authority, exiled Death Watch from the Mandalorian system. But when the banished warriors encountered the former Sith Lord, Darth Maul and his brother Savage Opress, both Vizsla and Kryze plotted with the non-Sith to retake Mandalore. Maul united several criminal organizations under him that he would call the Shadow Collective, and allied them with the Night Owls and Death Watch as they overthrew Duchess Satine and her government. However, soon after, Maul challenged Vizsla, killing the Death Watch leader and taking the Mandalorian throne for himself. However, Bo-Katan refused to recognize Maul's rule, and so her Night Owls split in two. Between those loyal to her and the rest who embraced the Zabrak assassin's vision for Mandalore, this really led to the formation of the Mandalorian resistance and erupted the planet into civil war. Now, the Night Owls who had sided with Bo-Katan fought against Maul's Shadow Collective and his Mandalorian Super Commandos, and eventually joined their forces with their former enemy, Satine loyalists, and attempted to liberate the Duchess from her cell, just so that she could contact Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi for help against Maul. But during the prison break, the Night Owls were soon overwhelmed by members of the Death Watch loyal to Maul. Though ultimately they were able to escape, Satine was recaptured and placed back in prison. Obi-Wan would soon come and try to save her, as Satine had been able to contact the Jedi before she was captured again. But because of Mandalore's neutrality in the Clone Wars, the Jedi could not send any reinforcements. So Obi-Wan was there on his own. The escape didn't go well, and unfortunately ended with Maul killing Satine. But the Night Owls were able to rescue Obi-Wan before he was taken to his prison. The Night Owls then, together with Obi-Wan, fought a massive battle in the capital city, Sundari, against Maul's super commandos, and were eventually able to fight their way to a starship and get Obi-Wan off Mandalore, so that he could return to the Republic and inform them about the situation. Reinforcements from the Republic would first arrive a year later. They laid siege to the planet and drove Maul's forces off the homeworld of the Mandalorians. Bo-Katan was then made Lady of House Kryze and Regent of Mandalore, a position she only held for a short time, as once the Republic transitioned into the Empire, Kryze and her Night Owls refused to follow the new Galactic Emperor, Palpatine, 
and thus she lost her position as regent and the clan Saxon took her place. The imperial presence on Mandalore led to yet another civil war that lasted for years. It wasn't until Bo-Katan met Countess Ursa Wren and her daughter Sabine who gave the Night Owl leader the Darksaber, an ancient lightsaber that was a symbol for the Mandalorians for worthiness and leadership, that the clans could be united once again. For when the two members of Clan Wren gave Kreese the saber, they were declaring her worthy of being the new Mandalore, the leader of all Mandalorians. The Darksaber is one of the most storied lightsabers in galactic history. What makes this weapon more unique than other legendary blades is that it became a symbol of leadership in the Mandalorian Vizsla clan, and could only be won through combat. Since the weapon itself is at least 1,000 years old, that means it's passed through the hands of countless Jedi and Mandalorians before inevitably ending up in the safekeeping of Din Djarin some years after the fall of Darth Sidious and Darth Vader aboard the second Death Star above Endor. Today, we're going to take a look at every single owner of the Darksaber throughout history as we track the lineage of the unique lightsaber. Number one, starting off with Tar Vizsla. The original owner of the Darksaber was a Jedi named Tar Vizsla. Tar was a Mandalorian and, in fact, the first Mandalorian to be accepted into the Order. Although the exact date of Tar Vizsla's birth and death remain murky, we know that he existed sometime prior to the fall of the Old Republic. So he was around sometime before 1000 BBY. During Tar's time on Coruscant, he actually created the Darksaber when it became time for him to create a Jedi weapon of his own. After some time, he left the Jedi Order and went to Mandalore, where he became leader of the Mandalorians. Number 2. The Jedi after Tar Vizsla's death, the Darksaber found its way into the Jedi's hands once again. For an unknown period of time, the Jedi Order held the weapon in its vaults. It's likely that they used the same chamber that Jocasta knew protects when she was the librarian of the Order. Perhaps the Darksaber sat alongside ancient Jedi relics like Darth Momin's helmet and the mini Death Star gun, both of which would be used by Darth Vader in his early years as the Emperor's Enforcer. Number 3. Unnamed Clan Vizsla Raiders When Tar Vizsla used the Darksaber to consolidate his rule over Mandalore, the weapon became a symbol for leadership for not just Clan Vizsla, but all Mandalorians. When the Republic was at its lowest, perhaps prior to the final battle of Rusan, or even further back, around the time of Exar Kun's Great Sith War, raiders of Clan Vizsla descended on the Jedi Temple on Coruscant and ransacked it as they searched for the Darksaber. Once they located it, they took it back to Mandalore, and once again used it as an heirloom to symbolize the leaders of their people. Number 4. Pre Vizsla at least a thousand years passed between that Mandalorian raid on the Jedi Temple and the next time the Darksaber would rise from the dust of history. During the Clone Wars, a nationalistic Mandalorian terrorist known as Pre Vizsla wielded the Darksaber in combat. As leader of the Death Watch, Pre Vizsla dreamed that his people would once again roam the galaxy aboard their basilisk droids and besiege worlds like his ancestors, Mandalore the Indomitable and Mandalore the Ultimate had done thousands of years prior. Pre Vizsla's vision eventually brought him to odds with the Republic, and he ended up fighting against Obi-Wan Kenobi. Number 5. Maul During Pre Vizsla's short tenure as leader of the Death Watch, he struck a bargain with Maul and his brother Savage Opress, who were finalizing the structure for their underground criminal empire, the Shadow Collective. At some point, 
Previsla thought he had extracted all the value he could squeeze from the relationship, and he locked the two away. That betrayal would cost Previsla his life and his Darksaber. Maul eventually escaped, and after Vizsla accepted his challenge, the former Sith quickly defeated the Death Watch leader. That battle resulted in Maul's ascension as leader of the Death Watch and rightful owner of the Darksaber. Number 6. Darth Sidious It's important to note that even though Darth Sidious never claimed ownership of the Darksaber, he could have. In his famous duel with Darth Maul, where he cruelly murdered his brother, Savage Opress, the rules of Mandalore dictate that Sidious would have the right to the Darksaber. But Sidious chose not to use the Darksaber's legacy to his advantage, and simply cast it aside, allowing a group of Mandalorians to later return it to Maul. Much later, Sidious once again defeated Maul in a final battle on Dathomir, but again decided not to claim the blade as his own. So this one is kind of murky, I figured I'd just throw it in there, because he truthfully is a very rightful heir to the sword. However, he just didn't care for it. He didn't really care for lightsabers in general, actually. Number 7. Kanan Jarrus After Darth Sidious rose to power as Emperor of the First Galactic Empire, the Darksaber was kind of... sort of still Maul's. At one point, while on the Nightsister-controlled planet of Dathomir, a Jedi who had survived Order 66, named Kanan Jarrus, took the Darksaber from Maul's table and used it to destroy a Darkseid relic. He held on to it for a short while before ultimately relinquishing it to its next owner. Number 8. Sabine Wren Sabine Wren was a Mandalorian who ended up traveling around the galaxy with Kanan, becoming a rebel soldier. She found herself more and more estranged from her Mandalorian heritage until Kanan Jarrus discovered the Darksaber on Dathomir. Eventually, Kanan taught the young Mandalorian how to use the weapon, and although her claim was initially challenged, since she didn't get the sword from defeating Maul in a one-on-one -on -one combat, her successful fights against Gar Saxon solidified her claim. Number 9. Bo-Katan Kryze Just like Kanan Jarrus had handed the Darksaber to Sabine, Sabine Wren would find herself in a similar position, eventually passing the Darksaber to Bo-Katan. Once a member of the Death Watch, and one of the few who didn't follow Maul once he defeated their leader, Previsla, Bo-Katan eventually found herself somewhat reformed. By the time Sabine allied herself with Bo-Katan, Ren considered the former Death Watch terrorist as someone who could truly make use of the Darksaber. After successfully destroying an Imperial superweapon, Bo-Katan accepted the Ancient Blade and used it to try and unite the clans. Number 10. Gideon Five years after the death of Darth Sidious, the Darksaber fell into the hands of Moff Gideon, an Imperial warmonger who had brutally ransacked Mandalore during the Purge. His desire to wield the weapon might have simply been from his complete and utter disdain for Mandalore and their culture, which must have been a powerful emotion, considering how forbidden using Jedi relics was in the Empire. How Gideon took it from Bo? No one really knows yet, but he obviously bested her in combat or maybe even stole it from her and then had her arrested, where she maybe escaped. I don't really know, just making that up. Number 11. Finally, Din Djarin. While we don't know much about Gideon's time with the Darksaber, we know how he lost it. In a fight with the Mandalorian, Din Djarin. Gideon ended up on the losing side of that battle and Din walked away with the Darksaber as his prize. Little did he know at the time, but he had just taken the one treasure that Bo-Katan and the other Mandalorians desperately wanted to claim. By the time Din realized what he had done, he tried to offer the weapon back to Bo-Katan, but it was too late. 
it was now his. In order to get it back from him, she would need to fight him and win in a trial by combat. And seeing as how they both just fought on the same side until Luke Skywalker showed up, I don't think she would do that. Or if she did, we haven't heard about it yet. I wonder who's going to have the Darksaber next. Maybe it could be Grogu. I, I don't really know. I mean, eventually I think Grogu will be the next Mandalorian Jedi after Tar Vizsla, which is the first one to have the Darksaber. And maybe he'll be the last one who has the Darksaber, seeing as how he can live to be well over 900 years old. Today we're going to go over 10 facts about the Darksaber. Now if you haven't seen my other top 10 facts videos, I have a whole playlist on them, so go check them out at your convenience. Now when we look at the Darksaber, the weapon that was so savagely used by Maul and many before him, it's not hard to imagine all the ways that this blade is different from a typical lightsaber. So what makes it so unique, and what benefits those small changes might make to the wielder? While the origins of this blade itself are quite murky and not really fully actualized, especially since Disney hasn't clarified the new canon's position of the ancient tales of the Jedi from 5000 BBY to 4000 BBY, there's a lot of valuable information here that can help you understand why the Darksaber is so important. Starting in at number 10, shorter than a lightsaber. Unlike most lightsabers that the Jedi wielded, the Darksaber was slightly shorter. At three feet in average length, the lightsabers of Ulic Keldroma and Ki-Adi-Mundi were able to strike at opponents over a meter away from them. But the Darksaber was a bit different. Although many records indicate that the Darksaber might have been just as long, the main sources on the matter differ, and agree that it was stockier. As we know, the Darksaber was also a version of a lightsaber, but its shorter length meant that it was a quicker weapon to wield, and one that could more accurately be used to plunge through the weak joints of Beskar armor, which its original owner would need to do when he returned to Mandalore to claim leadership. Number 9. Looks like a Beskad or a Katana The Darksaber was a flat, seemingly single-bladed weapon, like the original Beskad that the earliest Mandalorians wielded, or vibrosaurs, that were infamous among some of the BX series droids in the Clone Wars. The Darksaber looked much more like an ancient Jedi katana. While the inspiration for this design hasn't been settled, as the records of its creator Tar Vizsla remain incomplete, it's hard to deny the similarities between the Darksaber and the Beskad. Number 8. Emotions could affect the blade, like original Force Sabers. Like the original force-imbued blades of Temmadog on Tython, a user's emotional state could affect the type of power the Darksaber emitted. When extremely angered or enraged, the Darksaber seemed to crackle with more arcs of electricity. As most of the lightsabers of the Ancient Order were equipped with a power modifier, like the one Exar Kun used to break the Beskar tomb of Frieden Nad, it's not unlikely that the Darksaber was always able to increase its power output, instead of merely being a sign of its bearer's ability in the Force. Number 7. Made by the first Mandalorian to ever be accepted into the Order as we all know, the Force Saber owes a lot of its design to ancient Mandalorian culture, and there's a reason for this. The weapon was actually the design of the very first Mandalorian to be accepted into the Jedi Order, millennia before Anakin Skywalker was ever recruited. That first Mandalorian Jedi, who we know as Tar Vizsla, was tasked to create a lightsaber just like every other Padawan or Knight, but he chose a unique design for his weapon perhaps in the fashion of the Beskad, the ancient Mandalorian sword. Number 6. 
family heirloom of the Vizsla clan. Later when Tar went back to his home planet of Mandalore and won the title of leader of the Mandalorians, the Darksaber became a symbol of his rule. In the years following his death, the Darksaber passed through the hands of his clan, the Vizsla, for generations until it ultimately came to Din Djarin. Number 5. Obi-Wan Fought Against It After the Darksaber was stolen from the ancient Jedi Temple, memory of the weapon faded from history until it reappeared in a battle against Obi-Wan Kenobi. Pre Vizsla, a far distant descendant of Tar Vizsla, wielded the Darksaber when he challenged Obi-Wan Kenobi during the Clone Wars. Number 4. Darth Maul Used It To Fight General Grievous Shortly after escaping captivity within Count Dooku's jail in the comic series run Son of Dathomir, which takes place between the Clone Wars, which I really hope we get an arc for one day, Darth Maul and his Mandalorian warriors, I call them the Maldalorians, found themselves in battle against Separatist forces. Their commander was General Grievous, the lightsaber-wielding cyborg that Obi-Wan Kenobi would ultimately defeat on Utapau, bringing about the end of the Clone Wars. In their duel, Darth Maul deftly used the shorter Darksaber to parry Grievous's blades, but the former Sith Lord was at too great a disadvantage. As he looked around the battlefield and listened to the cyborg boast in his hoarse, hacking voice, Maul realized that he might be able to defeat Grievous in the duel, but he would need to lose his troops in the process. Maul decided to retreat, even if it meant Grievous could claim that he won their fight. Number 3. It could only be won by defeating its owner. The Darksaber was always just a lightsaber, at least when Tar Vizsla wielded it during his time as a Jedi Knight in the Jedi Order. But after he returned to Mandalore with the weapon, it became a symbol of leadership. Eventually, in order to claim ownership of the blade, a custom was developed. You needed to defeat its current owner. The development of this custom makes sense, since leadership of the Mandalorian clans could be won in a duel, as Ulic Keldroma famously did when he defeated Mandalore, the Indomitable, in the Great Sith Wars, bringing the Mandalorians into the Sith fleet. Number 2. Several Darksaber owners didn't actually win it in combat. Although everyone knew that you needed to win the Darksaber in combat in order to claim it without criticism, many of its most famous owners didn't actually come about it that way. Sabine Wren and Bo-Katan are just a few who didn't technically win the blade in combat, and so had their ownership questioned throughout their lives, and possibly cursing the Mandalorians. And finally at number 1 we have the Mandalorians stole it from the Jedi. While Tar Vizsla, the original Mandalorian Jedi who created the Darksaber, might have used the weapon often during his campaigns to consolidate power on Mandalore, after his death, the blade fell into the hands of the Jedi Order. It remained there in the very same vault that Jocasta knew guarded in the aftermath of Order 66, until a group of Mandalorians from Tar's clan decided they would steal it and make it the heirloom of their people. Today's video is going to be an interesting one. It's going to go into detail about a character that many of you may not know, so let's begin. Called a barbarian by Count Dooku, for good reasons, the brutal, egomaniacal, yet charismatic first leader of the Mandalorian splinter group, Death Watch, was a man named Tor Vizsla, who among his many atrocities happens to also be responsible for the slaughter of a young Jango Fett's family. Geared in striking black armor with a red cape and armed to the teeth, Tor was fueled by fever dreams of galactic conquest and a return to the traditions and ways of his people's warrior forefathers. However, there was an obstacle in his path to glory. 
a former lawkeeper turned Mandalorian named Jaster Muriel, who had proven himself a wise and noble warrior, and had quickly ascended through the ranks until he was made Mandalore, the title bestowed to the leader of all the Mandalorian clans, including Clan Vizsla, which I'm sure the name didn't give it away, was the clan Tor Vizsla belonged to during this period. Jaster Muriel, the ex-journeyman protector, which is basically just a fancy name for a space cop, had set in motion reforms that he felt the Mandalorian culture should adopt and embrace. Reforms that stood in stark contrast to the goals of Tor Vizsla. And so, as you guys might have guessed, the idea of someone like Jaster being the leader of all the Mandalorians didn't sit quite well with Tor. At the time, Mandalorians had a well-earned reputation as savage raiders and conquerors. But their new Mandalore wanted to change that perception by having his people embrace a new ethical and moral code, which became known as the Super Commando Codex. This new way of thinking focused on making the warrior clans see themselves not as enslavers of other systems, but rather as a high-paid mercenary who conducted themselves with honor and distinction. To a hot-headed guy like Tor Vizsla, Jaster's reforms were seen as a direct existential threat to the history and traditions of the Mandalorian warrior culture. So, he decided to pursue the title of Mandalore for himself. However, the problem was that he wasn't the only one in opposition to Jaster's rectification, so to speak, of Mandalorian culture either. The pacifist faction known as the New Mandalorians also disapproved of the concept of an honorable Mandalorian mercenary. This is because as pacifists, they were devoted to neutrality and peace above all, and they were severely opposing any form of violence and military might. But that just made Tor despise them even more than he did Jaster Muriel. So, gathering followers with a similar desire and craving to return to the conquering glories of their past, Vizsla set in motion the decades-long Mandalorian Civil War, when he led a bloodthirsty coup against Jaster's faction for control of the galaxy with his own warrior sect, which yes, was Death Watch. Jaster Muriel and the warriors who remained loyal to him and his cause named themselves the True Mandalorians. So, to not get confused, all the names that we have so far are Death Watch, the new pacifist, New Mandalorians, and Jaster's True Mandalorians. Alright, so the true Mandalorians went into hiding, as Tor Vizsla's Death Watch dispersed their forces and battled them across the galaxy. Now eventually, their war came to Jaster's former homeworld in the Outer Rim, the agricultural world Concord Dawn. This is where Vizsla's warriors continued to hunt down Jaster's forces throughout the planet, with one of their earlier skirmishes occurring near a farm that was the homestead to a family with the surname, you guessed it, Fett. This was Django's family's farm. The battle didn't go Jaster's way, so he and his followers had no choice but to retreat into the Fett's family crop fields. When the owner of the farm discovered them, he recognized Jaster, as he had replaced him as the journeyman protector of Concord Dawn, after the true Mandalorian's leader had been exiled. So, the Fets offered them refuge, but Vizsla's death watch was in hot pursuit and came across the son of the farmer, Django Fett. After interrogating the young boy, Vizsla learned that Django's father was helping to hide the true Mandalorians. Taking the young Fett hostage and using him as leverage, the fanatic Death Watch leader, Tor, attempted to get Django's father to tell him the whereabouts of Jaster Muriel, even beating him up to a pulp 
to get him to talk. But still, the journeyman protector refused to give them up. Frustrated, Vizsla switched tactics and instead decided to threaten to execute him in front of his son Django. But before he had a chance to go further, one of Vizsla's men, the one who was holding the boy, was blasted away by Django Fett's mother. Taking advantage of the momentary chaos, Django's father implored his son to flee into the fields. However, several of Vizsla's men quickly pulled themselves together and ran after the boy. But before they could get their hands on him, Jastamriel and his people intervened, just in time and managed to save the young Django Fett. The problem was there was nothing that they could do for his family. Django's parents were killed and he believed his sister, Arya, shared the same fate. However, in fact, she was instead taken in by Death Watch and would eventually end up becoming one of them. But that's a whole nother story. That very day, Vizsla also had the Fett homestead and their crop fields set ablaze. So he believed he had finally rid himself of Jastrom Reel forever. However, in a nearby town, after two days of prematurely celebrating to their heart's content, the seeming total victory over their great enemy, the noble, true Mandalorian leader and his remaining forces crashed the party and ruined Death Watch's good time. You see, before the burning fields could do them in, Jango Fett had returned the favor to his rescuers and showed Jaster and his troops the way to an irrigation tube. This led them to a path out of the flames. So he essentially did save them. Running from the remaining true Mandalorian party poopers and their surprise attack, Vizsla beelined for a tank. But before he could take advantage of the vehicle, the young Jango Fett managed to place an explosive on the underside of the machine. And boom, it goes off. When the smoke cleared, there was no sign of Tor Vizsla's body. So, Jaster and his troops then unfortunately made the same mistake Death Watch made. He assumed, despite not finding any remains, that now their great enemy was also gone for good. It would turn out to be years instead of days before Jaster's faction discovered just how much they had underestimated Tor Vizsla. The Death Watch chieftain had managed to survive and escape Concord Dawn. Of course, in keeping with good Star Wars tradition, he hadn't done so before getting his face permanently deformed and scarred. But after having licked his wounds for a while, Vizsla was finally ready to resurface and claim his vengeance. So, he lured the true Mandalorians into a trap on a rocky and forested planet called Corda Six. What his enemies didn't know was that in a surprise move, Vizsla had secretly negotiated an alliance with several of the local Cordons, and together with their forces combined, they had attacked the unsuspecting true Mandalorians. Among their forces stood the 14-year-old Jango Fett, who is now considered an adult in Mandalorian society. After having lost his family that fateful day at their farm, Django had been taken in by the Jaster Mareel himself, who was still considered the Mandalore, let's not forget. The issue is, like the dark fate that befell his biological parents, the young Django, despite being more mature and better trained, was still unable to prevent a similar destiny from happening to his surrogate father figure. For when Vizsla finally struck directly at Jaster and his second in command, a cold and reckless man named Montras, a grenade went off that Montras just managed to avoid by triggering his jetpack. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for the Mandalore, who was left severely wounded by the explosion. Wounded, but not completely dead. Not yet. Jaster was still able to call out Montras for help, but that was when he was in for the second bad surprise of the day. His right-hand man decided then and there, 
almost like a Sith Lord would have, that this was the moment to betray his leader and mentor. So instead of ordering in an airlift, as Jaster wanted, Montross abandoned the true Mandalorian ruler to deal with Death Watch alone, wounded and betrayed. And thus, unable to defend himself when Tor Vizsla fired on him from a four-wheeled tank, Jaster Muriel was gone forever. Montross would attempt to take the mantle of Mandalore for himself naturally, but he was exposed as a traitor by Jango Fett, the chosen heir of Jaster Muriel, after which Montross was exiled and the 14-year-old Fett was made the new Mandalore and vowed to end the threat of Tor Vizsla from the galaxy forever. He kept striving to honor that vow as he pursued the Death Watch leader through the grim and dark raging years of their ongoing war. Though Jango Fett had proved himself to be a great and strong competent warrior and leader, he made a fateful mistake when, in exchange for information that could lead Jango to Tor Vizsla's whereabouts, the new Mandalore agreed with the governor of a planet called Galadron to squash a rebel uprising that was causing him political troubles. But Vizsla was 10 steps ahead once again. While Jango and his warriors were quelling the rebellion, as they had been hired to do, Vizsla had convinced the governor to contact the Jedi Order and tell them instead that the true Mandalorians were slaughtering civilians. To provide proof, Death Watch did the butchering, but the blame was put on Jango's faction. By the time Fett had realized the governor was working with Death Watch, it was too late. The Jedi Council dispersed a team led by the esteemed Jedi Master Dooku and surrounded the true Mandalorians at their camp. Realizing there was no way to prove their innocence and yet affronted by the Jedi's threats, Jango ordered his forces to attack. The battle very quickly escalated into a slaughter. A slaughter of the true Mandalorians, that is. Even as imposing and legendary as their martial skills were, even these powerful warriors must humble themselves before the Force. However, this isn't to say that the Jedi didn't suffer any casualties, either. They definitely did. In fact, Jango, in a fit of rage, managed using nothing but his bare fists, feet, and body armor to single-handedly kill six Jedi before he was finally subdued, a feat that Count Dooku took notice of. And of course, fast forward, that's why he chose Jango as the template. When all the dust had settled, Jango was the only survivor left. Tor Vizsla had wiped out the true Mandalorian through the Jedi, and the governor of Galadron took Jango's armor and sold him into slavery, where he was imprisoned on a spice freighter. So it really was a terrible day for Jango Fett, but a great one for Tor Vizsla. Fett's bad day lasted for two years, before he was finally able to break out of jail and get his gear back from the governor before coming after Tor Vizsla for decades worth of payback. After getting Vizsla's location out of the governor, Jango crippled the Death Watch leader's personal starship over Corellia and used his jetpack to fly through the bridge's viewport and attacked Tor Vizsla in their final duel. They fought through the halls of the crashing ship, even into an escape pod and continued on once they had reached the planet's surface and stumbled into a river. After all this time, Tor Vizsla was a hair faster, and the instant an opening presented itself, he stabbed Jango with a poison blade right between his torso's armor plate. However, as Vizsla was savoring his victory much like Maul did against Obi-Wan, it turned out to be premature, as just before Jango fell into full unconsciousness, 
it was Tor Vizsla's turn to be too slow. As in the last second, Jastamriel's adopted son and heir to his throne popped out the blade of his armor's gauntlet and cut a deep wound across Tor Vizsla's stomach. As Jangofet finally lost consciousness, the blood from Vizsla's wound drew the attention of the local Corellian predators. The spined and carnivorous feline direcats tore into the Death Watch leader's body, eating him before he had a chance to kill Django. Django Fett was spared from being their food because of the poison flowing through his veins. They could sense it, and they left him alone. The very tool meant to have led to his demise was what saved his life in the end. Django woke up the next day unharmed. As for Tor Vizsla, well, after his death, the Mandalorian Civil War ended with him. What remained of Death Watch went into hiding across the galaxy and stayed there until they would once again carry their banners for war during the Clone Wars. And as for Jango Fett, well, he became disillusioned with the ways of the Mandalorian society and chose to utilize his unique and deadly skills as a bounty hunter once again. And we know how the galaxy changed from there, in Legends at least. Why did the Jedi and Mandalorians hate each other so much? Well, there's a very long and extensive history as to why and what resolved it, at least for a momentary period in time. And we're going to go over all of those things in today's video. So sit back and relax. Now, the Mandalorians despise the Jedi and vice versa. It's a well-known fact in the Star Wars universe. The Mandalorian Jedi War was a series of fights and conflicts spanning through generations of the Star Wars universe. It's most likely the thing to blame for this hatred. Now, the war has been mentioned in Star Wars The Clone Wars and The Mandalorian as a particularly dark period in Mandalorian history. It resulted in the devastation of Mandalore, with much of the planet's surface left uninhabitable. Now, of course, the Empire destroyed the planet entirely, but before that, the Mandalorians have had civil war amongst themselves and war with other factions and, well, aliens. That war is not really anything new to Mandalorians or the planet itself. Which is one of the reasons why they're such great warriors, because they've been doing it for so long. It's in their blood. Now, it really gets down to the nitty gritties, and this is what it's about. Mandalorian culture values honor, strength, and independence, which is quite a stark contrast to the Jedi's philosophy of selflessness and service. Now, the Jedi Order saw the Mandalorians as a threat to the entire galaxy and the galaxy's stability, so they worked to contain their expansion. They saw these guys kind of like as nomads, just warring and taking over. The Jedi Order was at the forefront of the Republic's efforts to stop the Mandalorian expansion, which led to a long and bitter war. Now, one thing about the Jedi is they felt very righteous, I think. And we see this perfectly exampled by Mace Windu. Now, the Jedi Order also saw the Mandalorians as a warrior culture that glorified violence, which of course went against the Jedi's peaceful philosophy. The Jedi hated the Mandalorians due to their aggressive and warlike ways, so they saw them as a threat to the Republic and the galaxy's overall peace and prosperity. In other words, I think that they feared them, whereas the Mandalorians viewed the Jedi as hypocritical, corrupt, self-righteous, and claiming that the Jedi were not above the use of violence themselves. So, Mandalorian armor was made famous by Boba Fett and Din Djarin, of course, was designed as a direct response to the power that the Jedi held in the Old Republic. The armor was created as a way to fight against the Jedi, as demonstrated in, of course, Star Wars Rebels. 
Season 3, Episode 15, Trials of the Darksaber. The Mandalorian's rivalry with the Jedi dates back thousands of years, and they once waged a war against the Jedi. This war is referenced by the armorer in the Mandalorian when she sends Din on his mission to find other Mandalorians. During the time of the Old Republic, there were five major conflicts between the Jedi and the Mandalorians, with the first being the Great Sith War led by Exar Kun, who united Mandalorian crusaders and Krath warriors, who were pretty freaking cool. I gotta make a video just on those guys, so let me know if you have heard of them before in Legends. Anyways, they recruited the Mandalorian crusaders and Krath warriors to fight against the Republic in a devastating war. The most famous conflict between the two factions is the Mandalorian Jedi War, of course, which was fought by Mandalore the Great, who challenged the Jedi and the Republic itself. This war ended on Mandalore, with most of the surface destroyed in the conflict. Now, of course, they built back over time, and it was never entirely destroyed like what the Empire did, but things were pretty messed up. This war resulted in the devastation of the Mandalorian homeworld. These wars were a series of many conflicts fought between the Mandalorians and the Jedi Order. They just went on over and over again, and the final war between both groups ultimately led to the devastation of Mandalore. Now, many Mandalorians, including soon-to-be Duchess Satine Kreese, as we fast-forward in time, did not want to continue the cycle of violence that almost destroyed their world, so she decided to become pacifist, and led her people as such. And this, of course, created a very warring group such as Death Watch. Now, one of the most significant turning points in the Mandalorian Jedi War was the rise of Tar Vizsla. Now, I think he is one of the most important things and people to mention because I believe Grogu will follow in his path. Let me explain. Tar Vizsla was the first Mandalorian Jedi. He was born on Mandalore and was trained in the ways of the Force by the Jedi Order themselves. He later returned to Mandalore and used his newfound powers to unite the Mandalorian clans under his leadership. Vizsla then created the Darksaber, a unique weapon that we have seen in Star Wars The Clone Wars, Rebels, and of course The Mandalorian. This weapon became a symbol of Mandalorian power and leadership, and whoever should wield it should control Mandalore and Mandalorians. Tar Vizsla was a member of House Vizsla a clan that held power over Mandalore in ancient times. The Mandalorians eventually rebelled against the Jedi, and the Vizsla clan took control of Mandalore. With Tar Vizsla becoming the first Mandalorian to join the Jedi Order, Tar's legacy lived on through the Darksaber, which became a symbol of leadership among the Mandalorians, and was later wielded, of course, by Moff Gideon, who then was bested by Din Djarin, causing major jealousy in Bo-Katan as she lost her entire leadership powers and respect by other Mandalorians as she once wielded it before, as we just learned in The Mandalorian Season 3. The relationship between the Mandalorians and Jedi is explored a bit in The Mandalorian Show with, you know, incorporating Ahsoka, Luke, Mando, and Grogu together, which of course, for those who don't know, is set five years after the events of Episode 6 Return of the Jedi, so five years after Darth Vader dies. Grogu was once under the care of the Jedi Order, much like Tar Vizsla. Throughout the show, Din Djarin and Grogu encounter several Jedi characters, including Ahsoka and Luke. Now, I feel like this is going to lead into the same story as Tar Vizsla, who united both groups at one point in time. The show's depiction of the Mandalorian-Jedi relationship is quite complex. 
with characters from both sides expressing different viewpoints, much like the Jedi and Sith, but this is even more polarizing. Some Mandalorian characters, such as the Armorer, see the Jedi as enemies and urge Din Djarin to protect Grogu from them. However, other Mandalorians, such as Bo-Katan Kryze, are much more in cahoots with the Jedi, having worked with many of them, and even seek their help in retaking Mandalore. When Luke Skywalker arrived to take Rogu at the end of The Mandalorian Season 2 to train him in the ways of the Jedi, which Jon Favreau has now confirmed, was actually two years of training, which we didn't really understand as the viewer, as the watcher, but hey, if he says that's what it was, then okay. I believe that Grogu will eventually come back to his Jedi training, and in a few hundred years, as he is a Yoda species who lives to be over 900, will eventually become the second Mandalorian Jedi to unite both groups and end the Jedi-Mando rivalry once and for all entirely. I find the Jedi-Mandalorian wars to be very interesting, and we can go into great detail as each war has interesting different points. But this is essentially why the Jedi and Mandalorians hated each other throughout the Star Wars timeline. I hope this got you guys caught up and I hope you enjoyed this video. I wonder if we're going to see more interactions with Mandalorians and Jedi or even hear stories about Tar Vizsla from any of the Mandalorians in The Mandalorian Season 3. If you enjoyed this video, please leave a like on your way out and I will see you in the next episode of Star Wars Theory. Until then, remember, my fellow Jedi and Sith friends, the Force will be with you always.